Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. We're going to be continuing our walk through 1 John. We've been doing this for several weeks now, and this morning, the interesting thing is the children back in kids' worship are studying 1 Corinthians, where Paul really challenges the church to love one another, to be visible to the world around them so that they may know that they are Christ's. And this passage is very similar to that. So we should have good family conversations as we go home today about being visible to the world and being distinctly Christ's. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. It says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this message, as we said, builds on what was taught last week, specifically the closing remarks from the previous passage where John makes it clear that one who does not love his brother in Christ is not practicing righteousness and is not of God. The typical way that we often see our position is to base that on what we do, right? How we act. And yet here John tells us that our passivity indicates our position, right? Not taking action consistent with our identity. So by not doing, we are indicating whether we are of God or of the devil. And here, by not loving the brothers, we are of the world. And he doesn't let us off the hook, right? By giving us kind of an opportunity to abstain, right? Or, or to have no opinion, plead the fifth, right? Instead, he reminds us that just as one who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil so too the one who does not show love toward his brother in need is of the evil one or of this world. And John has done that right throughout 1 John. He's drawing these contrasts and he's having these themes to look at our position as Christians in this world. So his logic is pretty simple. If you are of God, you have a certain quality, a character, and you will demonstrate that quality in the Christian life that is consistent with being of God. It will be kind of as advertised, right? Not fake, not counterfeit. Um, That idea of counterfeit came to mind. I I grew up in Brazil and often walking the streets of of Manaus. um, And if you've been on vacation to another country, specifically maybe South America or Central America, um, or on a mission trip, you will see streets often lined with vendors selling counterfeits, right? Knockoffs, uh, whether it's shoes or purses or DVDs or just general apparel with a logo on it that isn't quite what it's supposed to be, right? Not quite the original. Here's one here that you might see often. I'm a big Adidas fan, right? 
looks kind of right, but then when you look at it again and you buy that backpack with that logo on it and take it home, you're like, wait, Abibas? No, it's supposed to be Adidas, right? Close, but not the original, not the real thing. It's missing something, right? And so as children of God, of the household of God, we need to be clear about our identity so that we don't misrepresent, right? And this counterfeit business, it's a $1.2 trillion business, and it creates a lot of problems for brands, right? Um, It creates problems with loss of sales, damage to their reputation, fallout of poor quality and returns and having to deal with complaints, harm to those partners who are trusting them, and then all the time and money spent investing and fighting that industry. It's harmful. It's not good. And so we too, as children of God, need to recognize our reputation to a watching world is important to us. The gospel is important. So John's message follows this clear logic. We're going to jump into it here. It says, basically, his premise is that we should love one another, right? If we love the brothers in deed and in truth, then we have passed out of death into life. And if we have passed out of death into life, we have God's love abiding in us. And if we have God's love abiding in us, we are of God. Therefore, if we are of God, we will love one another. Makes sense, right? In fact, when, in Sunday school, when I said something like that to the kids, they're like, yeah. Makes sense. There ought to be unity, right? This ought to be a clear understanding of where being of God leads us. And so he begins right away with this idea that he's talked about before, which ironically is that the message that you are hearing is nothing new, right? He says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning in verse 11 there. And that specific message is that we should love one another, Now, as soon as you hear that, oh, this is a message we've heard before, right? And you're like tuning out, thinking of what we're doing next. Those of you watching live stream or like finding the mouse, looking for ways to find something else to watch because you've heard it before. But that's not necessarily a bad thing to have be, be able to hear something you have heard before. In fact, as believers, it should be encouraging. As parents, it's encouraging for me to hear my son or my daughters say, I've heard this before because it indicates they have been reading God's word. They have had teachers who are investing in their lives. They are familiar with what God's word says so that this is nothing new. And yet, it's something we need to be reminded of. And so in John, the gospel, chapters 13 and 15, John has, uh, he's told us about how Jesus repeatedly commanded his followers to love one another, referring to that command in Leviticus, right? That you should not hate your brother, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then earlier in 1 John 1 and 2, um, he says the same thing, right? This is nothing new. And so almost everything that John writes, specifically in this passage, is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, Almost as if he's serving as an editor, right? And just pointing us to where this message has already been mentioned. We think of 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, I mean, this is right here on our passage. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And I would encourage you, Kate Bible Chapel, I feel like we understand this, right? 
and I'm not up here to, to correct or see something that I see as a problem in our church. I want to encourage you to do this more and more. And at the same time, we need to be reminded sometimes. We need to be looking at our lives and saying, am I, am I reflecting that I am of Christ, right? Am I being authentic? Or are there some things that I need to work on? And so the fact that you have heard it before is of great encouragement, specifically that we should love one another. And this emphasizes really the importance of being in God's word, right? I, I feel bad for those who have not heard this before. If this is new to you, I'm, I'm grateful that you are here and that you are hearing this message. Because in this world today, in our culture, in our setting, our experiences, there's a lot of uncertainty, isn't there? A lot of inconsistency, doubt, confusion. And imagine that God's word, it provides us with confidence, certainty, consistency, assurance. Those are things that John wants us to have and he says that his purpose is very explicit in 1 John. He doesn't just kind of make us wonder what his purpose is. He says explicitly and deeply satisfyingly that you may have fellowship with one another. That's why he's writing. That your joy may be full. That you may have and practice the truth. That you may be sure. That you may know. That you may be reassured and that we may have understanding. These are all things that John is wanting us to move towards. How encouraging, right? How healing that we have God's word to draw us to that. So he's answering this question, how are we to act as Christians in this world and be identified as such, right? So here's kind of a purpose statement or, or a synopsis here of what we're gonna be learning this morning. We are to live with assurance that we are distinctly of God because we actively demonstrate our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ with the love of God. Okay, so specifically that we are distinctly of God because we actively demonstrate our love for brothers and sisters in Christ. That's you, the church, right? So before we jump into our points, I just got two points. So very simple, kind of like John's writing here, right? Two points, but before we jump into that, I want to define what does it mean to love, right? What does this love for the brethren mean? And love is one of the most common themes, I think, in culture. As I was thinking about that, it comes up all the time, right? In movies, um, in, in songs, um, but it's very misunderstood, right? It's even misrepresented. I think it's been warped. Uh, and speaking specifically of romantic love, I thought, I'm going to get just an idea of what our songs write about love, okay? Now, specifically from the world's perspective, guys, there's a lot of filth out in our songs today. Can I just say that right now? I mean, there's just a lot of garbage. But I found some songs that I'm familiar with that talk a little bit about just this romantic love. And I thought, that's a good place to start, right? What, are, what do we think about love? So here's some lyrics. What is love? Sounds promising, right? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Started off good, right? Now we're hurting people. It's just, I don't know. How about this one? Every breath you take, I'll be watching you. 
You guys are familiar with some of these, right? That's just creepy. Um, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. Now, some of you are like, oh, that was so romantic. Um, he just needs a little more responsibility, right? I mean, be responsible. Um, how about this one? I know where you hide alone in your car. I've got nothing on that one, but that is a love song. That's a love song. Um, and finally, it must have been love, but it's over now. And that's not helpful, right? We will never know what love was, and it's over. Now, granted, these are just some unique lyrics, right? But you don't want these people helping you understand what love is, especially agape love, the Christian love for one another, right? And so in this context in 1 John, it's not romantic love, it's not infatuation, it's not natural, it's not even an intense liking that we're going to be looking at here. And liking is something instinctual or natural. It's, it's not the result of a selfless effort, and it does not overlook certain characteristics, right, which agape love does. You simply like or you do not like. And so that is not what we're saying here. In fact, um, this sounds bad, but we're really not called to like one another, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary writes, we are not called to like the brethren, but we are called and commanded to love them. That's a different thing. Like and love are separate. Loving is not like an intense liking at all, okay? To love someone means that you act as though you like them. There should be no difference in how we respond to one another, okay? So this love that we're going to be looking at, it's it overlooks characteristics that we do not like for the sake of other people. It's the love that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the love that is demonstrated to us in redemption. This love is a love that remains, that is choosing, that overlooks, and that is in our passage today. John Stott summarizes this d- definition of love. He says, love is positive, it seeks the other person's good, and leads to activity for him, even to the point of self-sacrifice. And that's going to be a key term there, self-sacrifice. If you look at, throughout the New Testament, right, God's love for us is really described in the context of the gospel, the cross. And why is that? Well, it's because of the self-sacrifice uh, James Boyce writes, you know, why is it that, what is it that gives this love of God as seen at the cross its special character? And he says, primarily, it's that element of self-sacrifice on behalf of those who are totally undeserving and even undesirous of the sacrifice. So this is the kind of love we're going to be looking at, and that is the love that John here at the very first verse begins his message, and that is the love that distinguishes us from the world, okay? So first point there, we should be distinct from the world. The love really should, that we have for one another should separate us. Verses 12 through 15 address this. He says, we should not be like Cain, right? Here we go with a contrast again. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. But whoever does not love abides in death. 
And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, with this first point, this is going to be kind of just a, a walkthrough. I think everyone agrees with this, right, and understands it. But the world should be easily distinguishable, right? And, and when we are in the world, there should be a stark contrast. There should be obvious boundaries. Um, that, is, that is what we are talking about when we say that we are in the world but not of it, right? Clearly defined, noticeable, apparent, no questions about the distinction between us and the world as believers. Romans 12 talks about do not be conformed to this world. Um, Peter says we are a holy and peculiar people chosen for God's own possession, meaning we belong to him. We are preserved by God. And the psalmist says, blessed is the, the righteous man who does not associate with the ungodly, the wicked, the sinners, or the scoffers, meaning there's a separation there. And then ultimately, James, he says, even that friendship with the world makes you, by definition, an enemy of God. So it's clear, right, that there needs to be this distinction. So let's look at the world. What, what characterizes the world, briefly? And then we're going to look at what characterizes the one who is of God. So he starts off with this story of Cain, right? We're all familiar with the story of Cain. If you aren't, Cain um, was and, and Abel were sons of Adam and Eve, right? And um, it talks about how Cain, because of his hatred and because of his anger, because of the sacrifice that he offered, was not accepted by God because he was disobedient to God, right? God warned him even about that anger, but rather than repent and do well, he hated Abel, his brother. And it says that Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. And so he, he, he begins with this story of Cain and Abel to help us understand um, this hatred that character, characterizes the world. Um, jealousy, resentment, envy, Hatred leads to murder. In fact, murder, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5, is equated with hate. Anyone who is angry, he says in Matthew 5, with his brother will receive the same judgment as the one who murders. And so the world is characterized by hatred. The world is also of the evil one, he says. In John 8, verses 44, he says, You of, are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's will, and you are not of God. He's speaking to those people who are against Jesus, who want to kill him. And so as a child imitates his father, so too those who are of the evil one will imitate the devil, right? We talked about this uh, earlier in 1 John. And so I don't know if you sometimes are, are talking with somebody who's really just so... Um, they're so just put down about where the world is going, right? Just very surprised about how evil the world is. And I feel like sometimes we as the church think at some point maybe we hope that the world gets better. Um, but we need to understand that we will always have this struggle until Christ returns, right? With the world and how evil it is. And if anything else, it should make us long for his return. And so... Um, as John outlines the evil of the world, then he says, do not be surprised that the world hates you. So he says, stop being surprised, right? 
why is it that we think one thing when we really should not be surprised at all that the world is of the evil one, that it hates us, and that its deeds are evil, said Cain, who was of the evil and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. So we're really comparing here. Cain, who um, is an illustration of the world, and, and Abel, who is an illustration of the one who is of God, right? And ultimately, the example of Christ. His deeds were evil. That is why. It was centered on self. And their very nature is to lie because there's no truth in them. And if you look at uh, Romans chapter 1, this gives just a really good, clear picture of what the world is like. And I know when we think about the world, sometimes we think life is so good right now. But we're talking about the spiritual position of the world, right? It says in Romans chapter 1 verse 29 and following, it says that the world, or they, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's in there. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a pretty dark description of the world, right? It's ugly, unsettling. The Bible calls it warped and crooked. And so these are the evil deeds that characterize the world. And then finally it says that whoever does not abide, or whoever does not love, abides in death. And so that word abide means to continue and to remain in, to persevere in. And What's important for us to understand here is that when you are abiding in death, when you are remaining in death, it means that you are dead to begin with, right? Um, We are all at one point dead, dead in our sins until we are made alive in Christ. And so this is the new birth that we talk about. This is a picture of a resurrection to new life as a new creation, alive and a member of a new, a different household I think Ben mentioned that last week about how we are members of the household of God or members of the household of the evil one, right? And in Ephesians 2, it it gives us a clear picture here of what we're talking about here. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Everyone, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And so that is what John is describing there. He's saying if you do not love you abide in death. So that is the world, right? Let me ask you, are we like this in any way? What should you do if you recognize some of these markers in your own life? Or what if you see some of these characteristics beginning to settle in your heart? I'm going to talk about murder. But it's of the same 
thing in your heart, right? Hatred. What should you do? John says, don't be like Cain. And it's impossible to have the divine nature abiding in us if we are like this. And so we need to recognize that if you are abiding, if you are remaining in that position, then you must repent. That is what we need to be doing. And if you've not already, then receive his grace. Become a child of God. Receive life. Become distinctly of God. Right? That's what we're talking about, that distinction. And so then in contrast to the world, he looks at this, who is of God? What does this look like? He's saying that if you are of God, there, there should be this incompatibility with the world, right? The Christian should not ever feel comfortable. This is something I think we all struggle with. We like to be comfortable. And if you find Christianity attractive because of its ease, then you're confused about the authentic Christian life in this world, right? I like how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, if you want a religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. Right? There should be an unease in us as we are in this world. Why is that? Well, because we have been changed through the gospel. We are now of God. You are no longer of what we talked about earlier, of the evil one. You are no longer characterized by evil deeds, hatred, and murder. You've passed out of that, out of death, and into life. And so be distinct. And he points out a couple things here that we can focus on to be distinct in. He's saying, first of all, that we are to have righteous deeds as Abel, his deeds were righteous, right? Cain's were unrighteous, were evil. Abel's sacrifice was righteous. In fact, because it was accepted, right, we know that it was righteous. In fact, in Hebrews, we read about Abel as well. It says that God commended him as righteous because of his sacrifice, because of his heart. And he knew to be obedient to God, right? So your deeds are righteous. Second, you know that you are distinctly of God because you're hated by the world. He says, do not be surprised that you are hated by the world. And that for no reason, um, the world doesn't hate you because you're a hateful person. The world hates you because you are of God. The world does not hate you because you are a good person. In fact, the world will probably welcome you and embrace you as just a good person. But as soon as you make that distinction that I'm a good person because I am of God, and that is my motive in it, they will hate you. There's a great danger here of being just good, right? I mean, how often have we had that opportunity to distinguish ourselves from just being good people and claim the love of God abiding in us as our motivation for loving others, and instead we just kind of remain content to be quiet and considered good people? We must be different, right? The world will not hate you for being good, and therefore it's a temptation to remain in those circles of people doing good without ever really being distinct. So, Let's be distinct in our goodness. But that's because we're tempted to do that because the world hates us otherwise. Jesus, over and over again, told his disciples, right, the world will hate you because you are mine. He also quotes the psalmist in Psalm 35 and 69, 
In the Gospel of John, read how Jesus says that the world hates me without a cause. There doesn't need to be a reason except that we are distinctly of God. The world will hate you. Third, it says that those who are in Christ or, or those who are of God, they abide in new life. Verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brother. So we, we know this. It's a settled assurance. And if you're a believer today, I hope that you have that assurance, that confidence. He says, we know this. It's not something that we're debating or questioning all the time. This is something that we have confidence in. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this is the great certainty that defines Christians. That knowledge and that, that confidence is what makes us confident Christians, right? And distinct. Not only are we given life, but we're given a life that is eternal. Um, says that in 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That is assurance as a believer, and I hope you have that assurance. If not, read the things that you have been taught right from the beginning in 1 John. And finally, this is kind of the one that we really want to come away with this morning. He says, we know that we have passed out of death. Well, how? Because we love the brothers, okay? And that is then distinctly of God when we love one another. Why do we do that? Because we are of God. It's an expression of your love for God. In other words, it follows, right? It follows that if you are of God, you will show love to brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what people will see as evidence of your position. Those around you, right? Those not only around you in the church, but in the world. They're going to be looking at you and realizing that that is what distinguishes you and what, what really under, helps them understand who you belong to. But it's also proof of your Christian claim as a member of the household of God. So it's evidence and proof. And it's what makes you distinct, different from the world. Jesus said this in John uh, chapter 13. You realize I'm referencing a lot of the gospel of John? So John is really genuinely saying, you've heard this before. Like, I wrote it, right? These things I heard from Jesus and wrote them in the gospel. Jesus says to his disciples, the great test of belonging here, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so John is not saying that we earn our life out of death by showing love for one another, right? But that love is the evidence that a change has happened. It's the assurance of life. It's how we know. And so let me ask you this. Are you such a person? Are you a person who has love for brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you a person who abides in that new life with life eternal? Are you someone who whose deeds are righteous, and do you recognize that you're being hated by the world for who you are? Is that happening to you? I mean, often we want to avoid that, right? And yet, we can see that as a way that God is assuring that we are of Christ. Make sure that you're not just a good person, too, right? Make sure that you are distinctly of God. All right, so our second point, we're going to move on now from the distinction now to the demonstration of what this is, this love for the brothers, right? He continues in verse 16 through 18, and he gives us kind of from a, a broad understanding of just loving the brothers to now uh, an example as well as 
um, an evidence or, or a way to see it played out in life as an example, right? So he says in verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, or talk but in deed and in truth. So he kind of starts with this idea that basically is in verse 18 here that we ought to love one another, but not just in talk. We need to genuinely love them. We need to love them with authenticity, meaning that, that deeds are what show our love for us. And his example here is in Jesus, right? This is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Christ's death on the cross was the ultimate act of love, right? Commentator says we cannot be theoretical only. There needs to be a movement from the verbal expression of what we believe to active practice of the Christian's love for one another. And Jesus demonstrated that, right? Um, so his example is not only that demonstration of love, but it also um, kind of highlights that sacrifice, self-sacrifice, as we defined love earlier. And then it says that you ought to lay down your life for your brother's it's intensely personal, so that Christ's example, it should compel us to sacrifice our, out of a grateful heart, right? Now, we're not going to have the opportunity, probably, most of us anyways, to actually lay our life down for one another, or to give our life, but we must be giving of our life to one another in the same way, right? It is the same principle. Be willing to give your life, but while we are not doing that, we, are, should, we should be actively giving of our life to one another. It's a neat relationship between uh, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. God demonstrated his love for us in Christ, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in 1 John 3.16, it talks about him giving his one and only son, we ought to demonstrate our love for one another as Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ is the example of demonstrating his love for us. We ought to do the same. And verse 17 begins kind of this example of what loving the brothers might look like. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, this is a specific example about material possessions, right? It's a specific practical way that John uh, wanted to just highlight to understand what exactly we're getting at. How, how, how can we put this to practice, right? John is not saying that if you do not have material possessions that you're exempt from showing any love to one another, okay? Um, this is an example, but we also must use this in many other ways in life, not just material possessions. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But he's also not saying that the world's goods are the only way to show God's love to one another. And um, if we do that with a closed heart, it says... By considering somebody, if you see somebody in need and you close your heart, 
I think I lost my, my point here. He says, if you're doing it with a closed heart, it's this idea of um, closing your eyes to something or turning from that. Um, it, the literal word is actually your, your bowels, closing your bowels, right? Or your entrails. It's the heart or the seat of feeling, emotion, of compassion. And so it's intentionally shutting down your response. So if you have the world's goods and you see a brother in need and you close that off, right? It says that how does God's love abide in him? And so to meet a brother's need, you must first be prepared to give generously, right? Whatever it may be. Um, I was reading about in Deuteronomy about how the Israelites were commanded to, to give to their brother in need, whatever it may be. God, God gave the Israelites the land, right? Now he's saying to share it with brothers in need. And remember that how we are to be giving should be something that we think about as being distinct from the world. How are we as believers giving in a distinct way, right? Your generosity should be different than the world around you. Not out of your abundance or only if you have plenty to go around or the extras, right? We're not giving leftovers. It may mean painful sacrifice. And this is kind of where we begin to see then the definition of love and saying, are you giving to a point where you are feeling the effects of a sacrificial giving? It should mean painful sacrifice, right? James in chapter 2, he, he also talks about this same thing. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And he talks about how faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And it's the same with love, right? If love does not have works, it is dead. So we cannot remain indifferent to our brothers in need. Love always does something. Now, the reason that John has kind of focused on this is because when we keep it general, it's easy for us to just kind of forget about it, right? Um, one commentator, G.P. Lewis, he talks about how loving everybody in general may be used as an excuse to love nobody in particular. Um, we find ourselves doing this very easily, right? If we just say, oh, I love everybody in general, well, then it kind of makes us feel like we've checked that off, and we never then love somebody in particular. So, are there needs that you are seeing in this community? We're talking about Cape Bible Chapel here, right? And those who are in the body of Christ, do you see needs? And if you don't see those needs, I mean, are you actually saying that you've succeeded in shutting out all others to where there is no need that you are aware of? Because that's a different thing completely, right? So this morning, I want to just kind of wrap up, close with five practical ways to love your Kate Bible Chapel family. Um, as he speaks about this particular example of meeting a need with material goods, we need to really be creative and be thinking about other ways as well. I think that we do have material needs that we can meet, right? And to be giving out of what God has given to us. But we also need to be thinking of other ways. 
So five practical ways to love your Cape Bible Chapel family. The first is be with each other. This is kind of a necessary step, right? You need to be with one another. Um, to be able to understand that person, be present with them, engaged in their life, to know what those needs are. So be with each other. Second, be intentional. Ask specifically about each other's needs. Have that conversation. Love them enough to be intentional. Third, be extravagant. What I mean by that is consider all that you possess as available to meet the needs of others. Not just material needs, right? But being able to listen to them, to show interest in their lives, to, to share your experiences with them that will help them, to serve them, give of your talents, right? Even a word of encouragement. This list isn't exhaustive, so I'm putting that on you. Be creative with what God has given you to show love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Fourth, be prepared. What I mean by that is prepare yourself ahead of time to feel the pain of self-sacrifice so that it's not a surprise to you when the decision needs to be made, right? When you come to that opportunity, you aren't going to be surprised that you might have to feel some pain in sacrificing of yourself. And then fifth, be indebted. What I mean by that is when considering meeting a need, when an opportunity comes to you, start by assuming the answer is yes. Start with that. And from there, consider a reason that God would direct you to say no. Because we often do it the other way around, right? We often are starting with an excuse to say no, and then we're going to pray about it and see if God shows you a reason to say yes. But in a situation like this where a need is, a need is right before you, you should begin with yes, and as I'm considering it, I'm going to be sensitive if God is giving me wisdom and something that I need to say no about. The burden, in other words, is on you. When you see a need, and keep your eyes open, when you see a need, the burden is on you. Or as uh, Dan Green loved to say, the onus is on us, right? Stott says that if you become aware of a person in need, you are immediately in debt to them. And so... Let us do that. Let's take those five practical ways to love brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to leave you with some thoughts here, and we're going to get into this last verse here. It says that little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And the idea there is that we can be very sentimental about things. We can talk about things. We can... Um, act like we're willing to do so much, right? But if we don't actually ever carry that out, what good is it, right? Think about if Jesus was willing, but he never actually did anything. Think about the leper in Matthew 8, right? He, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal me. Did Jesus say, I'm willing, but I'm going to withdraw to a desolate place to pray. No, he stretched forth his hand, he touched the leper, and he said, I am willing, be healed. Think about this in reference to the cross. What if he taught about love, spoke about love, spoke many truths, promised to show his love? What if he was willing in word and talk, but not in deed and truth? What if he didn't actually 
act out his love for us and demonstrate it. To be no sacrifice, no redemption, no forgiveness of sins. So let us be grateful for Christ's activity for us, right? Reminds me of a husband willing to die for his, li- for his wife, right? Give his life for his wife. It's an expression of love, right? He says to his wife, I love you so much I would die for you. And most wives would love to hear that, right? To which she replied, well, while you are waiting for the opportunity to die for me, why don't you help me do the dishes? It's a good example of how in everyday life, while we're waiting for that opportunity, let's be active in loving one another in the home, here in the church, as you see one another and spend life with each other. So in summary, this is kind of how it plays out. This is from Stott's book, Letters of John. He says, this passage here is summarized by, hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. In contrast, love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. Therefore, what do we, what do we come away with? What are we going to walk out the door with this? Love one another in deed and in truth. And as I said earlier, do this more and more. I hope this is a word of encouragement to you that we are doing this as the body of Christ because we are of God, but let's do it more and more. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you demonstrated that love for us. Help us to recognize that we are distinct, that we are of your household and that we cannot be of anything else. I pray, God, that we would be uncomfortable in this world. I pray that we would champion the gospel by standing distinctly pure, distinctly in Christ, distinctly alive, distinctly righteous. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom as we navigate our lives and and, and keep our eyes open for opportunities that you give to us to love one another. And, And this does not limit our love to just one another in the church. We are to love all. We are to love the world. Everyone in the world, we are to love even our enemies, God. And so I pray that you would help us to be creative in finding ways to use what you have given to us, all that we possess, God, to sacrificially meet needs of all kinds. And I pray, God, that the evidence just would be so obvious to people watching, to people around us, that we are of God. And we pray these things, God, for your glory. I ask, God, that this morning as we leave, that we would not forget these things, but we would just even take those five ways of just demonstrating our love for one another and and help us just to get um, creative and active in our love. Let us not love in word or talk only, God, but in deed and in truth. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.